so it is a journey for a lifetime, right? You study for a lifetime, and um, I don't know that I, 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 I'm not at the end of my lifetime, <laughs> I trust, but you never know. But my love for the Word of God is a lifelong pursuit. My love for the people of God is a lifelong pursuit. For you, who know the blessing and the gift of sharing in this journey with one another, your love for the Word of God stretches back beyond this moment and will stretch out ahead of you in this moment. Your love for the people of God, the particular expression of the people of God, the churches of Christ, the Kerrville Church of Christ, is a lifelong love. It's a lifelong journey. My study, my love for the Word of God, and my love for uh, the church um, led me, I'm not sure if this is a, a flaw or, or whatnot, but to pursue the study of the Word of God and the people of God. And I've, I kind of did that formally through a number of degrees. <laughs> my wife says, no more degrees. No more degrees. At the end of my last one, I said, okay, that's enough. It's your turn. And she said, no way. I'm not interested in that. Um, but more specifically, um, my field of study is uh, in theology. It's in practical theology, which is refreshing, isn't it? That maybe theology could be practical. Actually, it means that theology is embodied in practice, and that matters. So what we do and how we do it and who does it and how all that happens is connected to who God is, what we understand about God, all that comes together. So you might have noticed, I don't know if you noticed in this series, that I've chosen to structure it in a particular way. After we have set out these guideposts, the first, the first uh, sermon really pointed us back to the beginning. God in the beginning. Who is God and what is the creation that God has called into existence and the created ones, the people that God has called into existence? And what does God desire? What's that beautiful picture of who God is and what God desires in togetherness in the beginning, right? Uh, and we use the language in terms of uh, males and females being created together for one another of togetherness and alongside. Remember that? And then we said that um, a, a turn comes in the story and at the fall, and that's where you first get the language of um, no togetherness, the breach, enmity. It says there'll be enmity between the man and the woman. And then uh, the no togetherness. It's not alongside, but instead it's above and below. And I uh, suggested to you that that's a consequence of the fall. So we talked about God the Father and the story in the beginning. And then we talked about how that plays out in God's redemptive work through Israel and right up to the life of Jesus. And I suggested to you last week that what we see in the telling of the life of Jesus and in Jesus' own actions and words is we see the redemptive work of God to restore humanity and human relationships, male and female, in the story, in the life of Jesus. In shocking ways that sometimes don't seem so shocking to us, but would be shocking to those who receive the story first and foremost. That Jesus um, uh, is born into the world in this way through Mary, that, uh, and how the story of Mary is told over against Zechariah, that Jesus interacts and empowers and dignifies and recognizes the place of women, that he's reordering even the legal standing of women in how he interacts, and that that plays forward then in Pentecost. And so we, we looked at not only God, 
um, but the work of God in Jesus. And then we mentioned last week also the coming of the Holy Spirit in this new community post-resurrection and how the Spirit falls uh, on people and how we're beginning to see that reconciling work of God restoring, leaning into that which He will fulfill in the end by the work of the Holy Spirit. So in case you haven't put those together yet, we've got God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's very Trinitarian, the structure of this sermon. The Trinity is itself the confession, the witness of our faith that is unlike any other. It's what makes the Christian story distinctive, and we believe true. We confess it to be true. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's been the structure of how we've approached this. So I want us to pick up um, right where we left off last week. Jesus crucified and raised the new community then trying to make sense of what it means that this one that they have declared Messiah has been crucified, buried, raised, and they're huddled together when the Spirit comes at Pentecost and falls over them. They are forging a life together as a new community that represents the new humanity. The new age has dawned in the resurrection of Jesus, and they're to bear witness to this. And part of what happens with the coming of the Spirit is that they're able to understand each other and communicate with one another in this new humanity, even though they speak different languages, right? Even the fact that we come from different cultures and speak different languages does not keep God's work to draw all people together. It transcends language even. They are inaugurated into the new age, the new covenant. They are inaugurated by baptism. So how many of you can remember your baptism? You remember your bab- how many of you know the date? Keep your hand up if you know the date. August the 10th, 1978. There's a few of you. It, August the 10th, 1978. My parents are here. They remember. I was 10, well just shy of turning 10 years old. That's pretty young, 10 years old. But I knew I wanted to follow Jesus. And I knew that in church, this is what it meant to follow Jesus. I remembered walking into the, it was a Sunday night service in August in North Texas where it's really hot. I remember walking into the waters of baptism and being shocked that the water was so cold. It's almost refreshing. I remember uh, afterwards when we went back to our house And we invited other families to come uh, to celebrate. I remember the kids went out in the backyard to play, and I stayed inside and stood at the glass siding door and looked through the glass outside at that, and it seemed like I was seeing the world differently at almost 10 years old, baptized. It matters. It matters. We believe that our life, one with the death and the resurrection of Jesus in baptism, matters. It's a turning point. It's a declaration. It's the saving work of God in us that continues to play itself out even when we turn 11 and 12, right? Our baptism matters. And so listen, here's what plays out in the life of these early Christian communities. They are inaugurated into the new age in their baptism, into the new covenant by their baptism. It's no longer circumcision that marks your entrance into the people of God, but it's your baptism that's the mark of the covenant. It's not circumcision, which is for male bodies only, 
But it's baptism that includes all of you, males and females. Baptism itself is a sign. I've got to tell you, until recently, this never occurred to me. It's a sign of radical inclusion and participation for not only males, but also females. Paul writes, it's what Paul writes when he talks about baptism and he talks about it in reference to circumcision. Paul himself, a Jew among Jews, steeped in the tradition. He understands the significance of aligning Christian baptism with Jewish circumcision. He knows what he's doing. When you baptize your daughters, this is not Paul, this is Stephen speaking. When you baptized your daughters, they were included. When they received the Holy Spirit in their baptism, they were gifted. They are participants in the life and the family of God, just as your sons are. I, I just um, have to... Uh, Let me gather myself for a minute here. I want you to hear that. I want all of you to hear that. I especially want the young women in this room to hear that. And look, the law of which circumcision was a part is not what makes them belong to God. Paul says it's the radical act of what God has done in Jesus Christ. When he writes to the Galatians, he reframes the whole thing. He reframes the whole thing. Look at this from Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Not through the law. He's just talked about the law. Not through the law. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor... Is there male and female? For you are all one in Christ. Your sons and your daughters are all one in Christ. It's what Paul writes. Peter, standing in the fire of Pentecost, bears witness to the new age, the new humanity with these words. He borrows them from the tradition and pulls them forward, and I guarantee you they were heard in a new way in light of the Spirit and in light of the resurrection of Jesus. The words of the prophet Joel, in these last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, he says. It's what Luke writes. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And here's the thing. In the early Christian community, they do. They do. The rest of the passage read so well for us this morning from Acts 21, verses 7 and 8. Here's the rest of the passage. Leaving the next day, we reached reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. How many of you knew that? 
Uh, maybe some of you ran across that and it caught your attention along the way, but mostly it's one of these obscure things or we've allowed it to be an obscure point in Scripture as we sort of hopped our way. And man, I studied, I was taught the missionary journeys of Paul and the maps, you know, the maps of the missionary journeys of Paul, all of those things. So it was more about the places Paul went and all of those sort of things. And, you know, there's the cool thing about the snakes and all that stuff. And, but this, at Caesarea, Philip the Evangelist, four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And Luke says that when Jesus was born and his parents brought him to the temple as an infant, something similar akin to the moment we had moments ago, he says there was also a prophet, Anna, and she never left the temple but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. She was a minister in the house of the Lord, Anna. Now, there are ways that you can explain that away, but that's what it is. Prophecy in the Old Testament and the way it's written about in the New Testament by those who know the tradition are those who are not just strange fortune tellers. That's not what prophecy is, fortune telling. Prophecy is casting a vision for the reign of God that meets us in this moment and stretches out before us. This is what God is doing in the world. This is what God is doing in the world, prophets say, over against the world. They proclaim the good news of the reign of God. That's what prophecy is. Is every woman prophesying in the New Testament? No. But sons and daughters, sons and daughters prophesied. Those given the gift of prophecy by the Spirit prophesy. It's what's written in Scripture. And when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he acknowledges that women pray in the assemblies. And it gets complicated right at that point. And we're going to talk about the complications of that in a moment. It becomes one of those places, Clay, you're talking about where it's not always easy to discern Scripture. But look, as one person has put it, Paul doesn't so much as clear his throat at the news of women praying in the public assembly in Corinth. Now, he has some instructions about how it should be done, but he doesn't say they shouldn't do it. And beyond that, there's this curious note where Paul is writing to the Romans, and at the end, he's extending greetings, and he says, uh, calls out a woman named Phoebe, who he says is a deacon of the church in Sincrea. Women in the early Christian communities proclaim or prophesy. They pray and they hold the title of deacon. It's what's written in Scripture. So if that's the case, if that's the case, why has it been our practice for generations that women are not allowed to do any of these things? 
Uh, perhaps it has to do <laughs> with the fact that Paul, who writes of these practices by women, also says some things that seem to directly contradict those practices, right? If Phoebe is a deacon in Sincrea, then why does Paul tell Timothy in another place that deacons must be the husband of one wife? Unless Phoebe is the husband of a wife, it seems to contradict itself. Yes? If Anna and the daughters of Philip and the women in Corinth are praying and prophesying, why does Paul say things like, women should remain silent in the churches? They are not allowed to speak. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Those statements stand in direct contradiction to the places where women are described as doing those very things, all within the witness of Scripture and within the instruction of the New Testament. So, before I say anything else about that, I just want to allow those things to live in tension with one another. Can we acknowledge that they live in tension with one another? And in, in fact, I would tell you that um, this thing around uh, women and participation and should be silent, but over here they're doing this, that tension in Scripture is not the only place that Scripture is in tension with itself. It is, there, there is something inherently, I think, um, a part of God's design and as the church has discerned the Word of God carried forward for hundreds of thousands of years and generation after generation, to not resolve those conflicts, but to leave them, those tensions, but to leave them as they exist. So that in every time and place, we have to pick them up and wrestle with them again. You see? So let's take a little bit of a deeper look for a moment. And I'm going to give you um, my teaching on this. I'm going to give you what I think. And, and I, I say that because um, I'm going to speak of it in some ways that I'm convicted of what it means and how to interpret it. It's not the only way. I'm not trying to be um, exhaustive um, to claim anything other than I'm honestly telling you, as I've lived with this over time, and it is a for-a-lifetime thing, over time, this is where I sit with this. Okay? Is that fair? All right. So this is 1 Timothy 2, um, 11 through 14. Uh, back one slide, please. There. Uh, nope. I think we're way past, so keep going back. Let's go to this. Is the f yeah, uh, nope, back further. Did you all already see these? These are, you're way, we're way ahead. Back one more. Or maybe that's it. Is that the first First Timothy 2 slide? Let's go to that, make sure that we're all on the same page. Okay. First Timothy 2, Paul says, he writes to Timothy, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. It seems very clear and very direct. And maybe this is the next slide, I think. But Paul also says this, um, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 
but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Let that sit there for a minute. What Paul is doing is he's drawing the tradition forward in that moment in his instruction to Timothy. He's using an interpretation of what happens in the beginning, much like we have done, to make a case uh, for instruction delivered to Timothy and the churches that Timothy will serve. These are the pastoral epistles and are instructions for Timothy about how to be a good pastor, a good minister to these churches. There are many places um, in Scripture. uh, um, um, Let's roll forward. Next slide. Just before he gives those instructions, he says this, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. He's giving them instructions about what's proper in worship relative to women and their appearance. Yes? Specifically, what they wear, how they adorn themselves. This is jewelry. Hairstyles, gold or pearls, or expensive clothes. How do you interpret that? Because how you interpret that passage really has a lot to say about how you'll interpret the words that we just read, which follow this. There are a number of places in Scripture where when we we, we hear those instructions or those writings, or when they're inferring instruction or uh, direction, that we read them and we say, you know what? I don't think Paul means for us to take that literally. I think he's trying to get at a principle here. I, I have never been in a church, and I think there are some that probably exist that take this literally, so that there are certain things that women are forbidden to wear. Um, we would be examining your jewelry this morning. <laughs> we would be examining your hairstyle. We would be examining your clothes, your purses, because there's some pretty fancy brands that could be out there, and that might be a little elaborate, Right? So we read that passage and we say, I don't think Paul is telling us that these are rules for all people in all times that they're culturally appropriated to drive at a principle. Yes? And so what I would suggest to you that when we get to the the passage that follows this, which is instructions toward women, that you're either going to read this as these are very literal instructions that he's giving rules that are for all the churches through all history from that point forward, or you're going to read it more likely as we... uh, Back one slide, please. We're not here yet. Or we're going to read this more like this one where we say he's trying to get at a principle, right? And these are the cultural manifestations of how he's trying to get at how you should live as men and women. Um, What I believe is that Paul is giving these instructions to Timothy at a moment in the church's life that's really, really pivotal. This, This movement that started in Jerusalem and at Pentecost and begun to spread out over time has moved westward into Greek and Roman culture, Hellenistic culture, it's crossing the boundaries of a culture in some pretty significant ways. 
And not only that, that Paul's navigating that. And not only that, but that when Paul writes to Timothy, most scholars believe it's toward the end of his life and the end of the lives of those first generation of the apostles. And he's having to hand some things off. And it's a critical moment where Paul feels like he needs to shore some things up as he hands those, that off. I guess what I'm trying to say to you is that what I believe is that Paul's concern is to help the next generation to be able to navigate those difficult transitions across culture and now without the guidance of those first early church leaders. It is a very specific cultural, historical, social moment. And his instructions are are through that and should be read as such rather than he's, he's writing case law for the church as precedent for all the generations to come. Look, this is the one. Uh, next slide, please. Thank you for your patience with me. I urge then, this is what he says uh, at the very beginning of this chapter, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Do you see what he's doing in that moment of transition? This is what I want to say. Hold that, and let's look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 14. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14. What's the teaching? What is Paul asserting? Is he asserting a specific command for all time, or is Paul's larger aim here? If you read going back to chapter 11, to chapter 12, to chapter 13, you know chapter 13. That's the love chapter, right? To chapter 14, that Paul's larger aim here is disorder in the life of the church and its assemblies and the exercise of gifts is not building up or edifying the body. That's the larger context. And even their practice, he says, in uh, chapter 11, the latter half of it, even their practice of the Lord's Supper has turned the Lord's table into something other than what it was intended. He's trying to order the life of the church in the ways uh, that are set in relief against his particular moment in time. Bringing order to chaos in the church in Corinth. He says things like this. This is verse 1, chapter 14. Follow the way of love. Remember, this follows chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Um, The more excellent way. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. That's how the chapter starts. He's trying to bring some order to the chaos that's ensued as the church navigates its way into new cultures and across time. In other words, I'm holding that these passages are contextually 
situated and specific. Someone will say, if you're not already thinking in your head, it sounds like he's trying to tell us that what the Bible seems to say very clearly is not what it's actually saying. So I thought I would say that out loud for all of you, <laughs> so you don't have to think it. It sounds like he's saying that what the Bible seems to say very clearly is not actually what it means. What I'm trying to do, I think, is to provide a broader context and note the contradictions and ask the question, how do these things exist within in relationship to each other? And even to call out some of the ways that our interpretation of these passages is inconsistent with the way that we interpret other places in Scripture. So, here's what I would say. Either, you'll see this on the screen, either... Usually women exercise their gifts in public witness of the church, but there are exceptions like these where Paul says, no, stop. Or usually women are silent, but there are these exceptions where they're not. It seems logical to me, that statement, that either or seems logical to me, given the whole witness of Scripture. When I hold these passages within the whole witness of Scripture... Um, what I believe is that in either case, the trajectory and the movement is the full inclusion and participation of women in the body of Christ according to the gifts given by the Spirit. That it's not, inclusion and participation is not determined by one's gender, but determined by the gift of grace in bestowing of the Holy Spirit for the edification of the body. So if you ask me, should men and women all be able to do the same things? I would say to you, no. Because not all men and women are gifted in the same ways. The point, though, is that participation and inclusion is determined not by whether they're men or women, but by the gifting of the Holy Spirit. This is where our journey of discernment leads us. And I've tried to share with you in um, as comprehensive, uh, I mean, the, the whole narrative arc of Scripture, whole of Scripture, and as honest a way how I read it. And uh, my point hasn't been to sidestep these passages or to look at them carefully. I've looked at them carefully. That seem to very clearly say that women should not speak or participate in the public assembly of the church. I've not tried to avoid those. But I have taken time for us to acknowledge that Scripture is also saying something that seems to be the opposite. And in terms of how we discern, how we will discern, how this church will discern, which is not my decision, the answer isn't to collapse that polarity or that tension, but I think that God has placed it there so that we are forced in every time and place to take it up again and say, what does this mean? What does this mean? And to pray for the Spirit to lead us and to pray for wisdom that Scripture offers us wisdom, not just rules. 
So this leads us to one final week in our journey of discernment. At least, I don't know if it's the final week in our journey of discernment, but it's the last sermon. <laughs> I'm going to preach on this. Some of you are like, whew. Um, and we're going to turn our attention to what I would name the narrative of experience. And that's not to move away from Scripture, but it's a move to do what Scripture does, because I believe that Scripture, as I've said moments ago in a different way, that Scripture invites us to take it up as a living word in every time and place and to engage it given our experience. Our own time and place. God's counting on it. That you people, I've called for this time. The, the spring, unseasonably hot as it is of 2022, is our time. And that living with God and a living and dynamic word where the Spirit is present is not transactional where you kind of got it figured out and it's locked down and you just need to get it right. But you live in relationship with it. Which means we have to listen to the word of God in light of the moment that we're in and the experience, our experience and the experience of others around us. I call this the narrative of experience, and it happens, we'll see next week, in Acts chapter 15. So I'll not go any further with that. We'll talk about it next week. There are a number of places where it says, as they consider things in the New Testament, that they listen to them tell about what they had seen and heard. They listen to them tell. What have you seen? What have you heard? This is the narrative of experience. And so, um, on your way out this morning, you will see one of these yellow sheets at the back. I encourage you to pick one up. It says, um, the series, it says the narrative of experience. And on the front there is, uh, it's printed out, a link to a YouTube um, audio. It's, it's not video, so you're not going to watch a movie. It's 38 minutes long. It's a podcast. On the back is a QR code. Take you there quickly. So either type that in or that and find the video. You have to have the password to find it. It's not just in the YouTube channel. You have to use this to get to it. Um, I, I, I'm going to invite you to listen to this, 38 minutes of your life, to listen to this narrative of experience. And then to come back, those of you who can and will, on Wednesday night this week, that's this Wednesday, May the 18th, and we're going to reflect and discuss what we have heard as we listen to others in the narrative of experience. Okay? Is that clear? We'll see how many of you do your homework. Pass the class. No, I'm just kidding. Um, what time? 6.30? 6.30 is when we'll gather here. So all, all of us will gather in one place. I'll facilitate and um, we will uh, dig into the narrative of experience um, and then next Sunday, we'll conclude this series by talking more about how the church discerns and how these things all come together, um, and we'll pray for God's blessing over these last five weeks that we've shared together. Um, let me conclude, and, and we'll make our way together around the table with this brief word of prayer. Would you bow with me? God, we thank you for your word. It is living and active and true, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing marrow from joint and, and dividing all things and, and giving us wisdom. And so we, we pray that it would be a light, a uh, lamp to our feet and a light to our way, that it would be living and active and 
that um, you would honor our lifelong journey with your word. Lead us now to this table where we claim again the grace that you've given us and the gifts of the Spirit that fall over all your people, where we break this bread and we share this cup, love each other more deeply as we are enveloped by the great love that you have for us in Jesus. In his name, amen.